Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. So today we're going to go into Revelation 13 and 14. I want to share a message with you entitled, The Tantrum of Satan, right? I first entitled it The Hissy Fit of Satan, but I thought it looked better on the slide with the word tantrum. Um, And so I want to talk to you about the tantrum of Satan from Revelation 13 and 14. Now, how many of you have ever witnessed a tantrum? Somebody throwing a tantrum. If you're married, I can bet that you've seen somebody throw a tantrum. If you have kids, you've definitely seen somebody throw a tantrum. You know, when there are tears and stamping of feet and throwing of toys and overturning of monopoly boards, and that's just your husband, never mind your kids, okay? And so we've all witnessed a tantrum. We've all had a few tantrums ourselves. Um, We see it in sport, for those of you that love sport. How many of you have ever attempted golf? And I say attempted golf because few ever master it. And, And when you play golf, it can be one of the most frustrating games on the planet. You know, when you three putt or you hit the ball out of bounds or you miss it completely, um, it's, it's really, really embarrassing and frustrating. And this happens even to the pros. Sergio Garcia, who's an incredible pro golfer, been on the tour for many years. In his rookie year, and I watched this video this week, how in his rookie year, he, he drives the ball off the tee with all these people watching and the ball veers off to the right and it begins to slice and it goes out of bounds. And I don't know what he thought the problem was, but his solution was to take off his shoe and to throw it at the crowd. And so his shoe hits somebody in the crowd, and now he's standing there with one shoe on. And he still has to walk the rest of the course, and he only has one shoe. And so he has to sheepishly walk back to the crowd and ask if anybody has seen his shoe that he just lobbed at them. And so this is what a tantrum looks like. Um, and um, something we've all seen, something perhaps we've all done. And last week in Revelation 12, we see that Satan held the world captive and, and, and how Satan had this claim over the people of this world. And, and all of us feel it. We're all impacted by it. We're held captive in a world that is rife with injustice and with sin. And God, in order to encourage the church, shows a vision to John of how he will step in at a point and defeat all evil, overturn every evil thing, cause every sad thing to come untrue. And in the vision, it's almost like a a massive drive-in theater, a theater in the sky that, that he gets to watch. And it's like an action movie that unfolds before John in this vision. And what he sees is, first of all, a woman who is adorned with the brilliance of the sun, with 12 stars as a crown over her head, and she is pregnant. And this woman represents the people of God. It represents Israel and the church, true Israel in the church. And it represents the community of faith through which God brought the Messiah. And next thing in the vision, he sees a dragon, a great red dragon with murderous intent. This grotesque figure of evil that is waiting to crush the Messiah, waiting to devour this Messiah that will be born, that will come through the people of God, because Satan wants to rule the earth. He wants to be in charge. He's known as the God of this age, and he doesn't want to give up his rulership 
over this world or over the people of this world because his ultimate intent is to destroy the earth. He's known as the destroyer. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all he wants to do. He wants to destroy lives. He wants to destroy communities. He wants to destroy nations. In Revelation 12, therefore, we see God, the heaven, the temple opens up, the Ark of the Covenant is seen, there's thunder and lightning, and all of this symbolizes God is now ready to go to war with evil. God is going to act on the injustice of of this world. And so as this movie plays out in the stars, we see that the woman then gives birth to the baby. So Jesus is born. This is the incarnation of Christ. And as the the dragon lunges forward to destroy the Messiah, he's caught up into heaven and is, is at the throne of God. And what it presupposes in this vision is that people understand what the life of Jesus accomplished. Between his birth and his ascension, we know he died on the cross. And even though the enemy wanted to destroy him and put the Messiah to death and, 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 and crucify him on the cross, what he didn't bank on was the fact that God would raise him from the dead, that the grave couldn't hold him, and that Jesus would have victory over sin and over death. And so Jesus wins the battle over sin in and over Satan and over evil at the moment he rises from the dead. That is why the resurrection is so central to our faith. And he is caught up into heaven. And so then the devil goes after the woman, but the woman is removed to a place of safety where God nourishes her. And this is the church. And so this being a, res- a-, a reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus sets something off in the heavens. Because the next little bit of Revelation 12, what happens is that war breaks out in heaven. And Michael and all of his angels are coming against Satan and ultimately defeat Satan and a third of the angels that had followed him. And the foothold that Satan had in the heavenly court is overturned. Now, some people think that this refers to when Satan rebelled against God in the beginning. It doesn't. Because what we see there is that Satan had the legal right to stand in the heavenly court and accuse the believers, accuse the people of God. He's known as an accuser of the brethren, and he had a legal right because they were sinful. And so even like he accuses Job in the book of Job, going before God and saying, but consider Job, look at Job. He only worships you because you bless him. He only worships you because you protect him. In that same way, Satan had this legal right to continually accuse us before God. But now, Jesus has paid the price. Now, Jesus has died on the cross. Now, he has no more legal right. He's ascended into, uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. The work is finished. And God says, right, bring Michael. Bring the angels, it's time. We're going to strike Satan from this pompous place. We're gonna kick him out. Him and all of his demons, this position, this influence he thought he could have in accusing humanity of their sin. He is immediately of that power and he is unceremoniously dumped out of heaven. And I use that word because the Greek word where it talks about how he was thrown out of heaven actually means something like bounced, right? Like, like Satan and all of his angels wanted to be in club heaven and finally God issued the warrant, get him out of here. And now Michael and his bouncer angel friends grab a hold of Satan and they unceremoniously dump him out of heaven. They, you know, in those movies when people get thrown out into the street, that's exactly the picture of what happens here. He has no right to accuse you any longer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We are no longer under the law, but we are under God's grace. And so he doesn't have that position and, and he crashes to the ground in absolute defeat and humiliation here on earth. This is the three-putt moment for Satan, right? This is the moment when Satan teed it off and it just veered off and went out of bounds in front of all of his friends. This is the humiliation of a swing and a miss, or like we would call it in South Africa, a freshie, right? He had a complete freshie at this moment, missed the ball completely, and now he's embarrassed. He's like a, a sulky teenager or, or an enraged toddler, and he wants something, anything, as retribution for being stripped of his legal right to accuse God's people. He tried to kill the Messiah, and he failed. He went after the church to destroy it, and he failed. And now he is about to throw a hissy fit. He is angry, he is mad, he is humiliated, he is sulky, and, and, and he is going to throw a tantrum. And, and, and we see this in Revelation 12, 17 is where we ended off last week. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So he's cast out of heaven, he lands on the earth, and this is where the church still is. So he goes after the church because he's humiliated and he's embarrassed and he's angry. He goes off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is a, a shame moment for the devil. You know, it's like, I don't know if you were ever a, a teenager and, and, and you went to the beach with your family and then you went and stood alone by the waves of the sea and you just kind of like stood there looking out at the waves. And just, you know when you have one of those, just like, I'm having a moment, just like a deep moment of, of self-pity or whatever it may be. And you're like, when is anybody ever going to love me? You know, I never had any of those moments, but maybe you did. Um, <laughs> When you like, and this is the devil right now. This is Satan. This is the great dragon. He's kind of standing at the edge of the sea going, oh man, I failed at everything. I couldn't defeat the Messiah. And, and you know why he's against the Messiah? Because the scripture said that that child in Psalm 2 that would be born would rule the nations. He would rule the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, his rulership would be immovable. It would be undeniable. It would be unquestionable. And he wanted to stop that. And when he couldn't, he thought, let me go after the people but then God preserved them as well. And now he just feels like an utter failure. He's mad, he's a defeated foe. He's humiliated and stripped of his rights. And now all he wants to do is throw a tantrum and make war against God's people. One of the best ways that he can do this is to get you to believe that he has more power than he really has. To get the church to a place where they honor his power or where they revere it in a way that makes us afraid of what the devil might do. So many pastors, so many churches preach messages about how powerful the devil is as opposed to how much victory we have over him. And that's why I love this chapter. That's why I love what God shows us here because he shows us the utter defeat of Satan so that we as the church will know that even though Satan postures with great ferocity and and, and, and with great intent, he is actually a defeated foe. And his worst fear is that we would realize this. Is that as the church, we won't stand back for a minute, not for a moment, at the attacks or the discouragement or the lies or the accusations of the enemy. It has no place here. It has no place on you. And it has no place in this church. We don't stand back from the enemy. Through Revelation God makes sure that we realize this. And that's why it's so important for the church to know and understand the words of this book. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his book, Reverse Thunder, which is one of my favorite books on Revelation. He says this, the terrorizing names, great dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan, deceiver of the whole earth, are a pile of dirty laundry on the ground. By this time, the dragon appears a bit bedraggled. St. John, it seems, is having a little fun at the devil's expense. The failed dragon stands on the shore of the sea and contemplates his failures. Obviously, he needs help, right? Obviously, he needs a little bit of help here. He has failed in every attempt. This is an amazing realization for us. Because what it shows us is that even when the enemy comes against our lives and our families and our churches, we know that we have the victory. We know that God has already kicked him out of heaven. There's no frustration on earth, whatever frustration you may experience. There is no frustration like the devil's frustration. No one is more frustrated than him. Nobody fails more in his attempts than him, especially when it comes to the church. No matter how hard he tries, the church cannot over, be overcome. He thought that feeding them to the lions in the Roman era or burning them at the stake or, or persecuting them or, or, or um, coming against them in every way, shape, or form would somehow destroy the church only to find it makes them stronger. It makes their faith deeper. It strengthens their resolve. It propels them forward. The more the church is persecuted, the more we progress, the further we go. And so this is utterly frustrating for the devil. And that's why his only option is to lie to you. If, if this was a poker game, the devil is sitting with nothing in his hand. He's holding up his cards and he's like, man, I got nothing here. And the only thing he can do is bluff. The only thing he can do is put more chips in trying to convince you that he actually has a great hand and that his hand is greater than yours and that he will defeat you. That's the only thing that he can do. But what the book of Revelation does is it reveals the devil's cards. It shows us his hand. And we see he has nothing. He has nothing over your family. He has nothing over your finances. He has nothing over your health. He has nothing over your relationships. He has nothing over this church. His hand has been seen. Jesus already went all in in this game and won and so all Satan can do is lie. I want to ask, what has Satan lied to you about? Your worth, your identity, your calling, your future, your ability to make a difference? Don't believe them. How do we meet the lie? It's obvious with the truth. The, the Bible describes it like a dark room and light shining on it, and everything that light shines on is seen for what it is. And so where there is a lie, God's light and truth dispels the lie. Whatever lie Satan has spoken over your life, dispel it with the truth of God's word. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the Greek, that flee means to run in stark terror. He cannot stand it when he can't get us to believe the lie. When he can't convince you that he has power over your life, he runs in the opposite direction. This is how we stand on the victory that we have in Jesus. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, speaking about Satan, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. His own natural tongue is, is the language of lie. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus also says in eight thirty one, if you abide in my word, 
You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So freedom from the lies of Satan is through the truth of God and who we are in Jesus and what the victory of God ultimately is. And so the devil's only remaining trick, he's standing on the seashore, he obviously needs help, he's been kicked out of heaven, he's got limited time. His only remaining trick is to create a network of lies, a culture of lies, a system of lies that will deceive as many as possible. That's his intent. Have you ever been lied to? How many of you have boxes of weight loss products at home because you were told they were going to work? Don't put up your hand. Okay. This is what the, he promises something but never delivers on it. And so in this next bit, Satan develops his lies and conjures up a certain system and a network and a culture and certain uh, agents that will help him deceive the world. It's all he can do. It's his final tantrum before the judgment comes, and we experience it in this world even today. The spirit of what he conjures up there is already operational, and that is why the church is often so hated in our society, because we keep shining the light. We keep speaking the truth that the devil is trying to sell to everybody. It's like a salesman trying to sell you something, a product or something, and, and you walk over and interrupt and go, sorry, sorry, that won't work. I know it doesn't work. Like, it, it, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Don't, don't waste your money. That salesman is going to be mad at you. And that's what we see here essentially happening. And so in Revelation 13, it describes Satan conjuring up two beasts. Now, when we read beasts, it's, 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 remember, this is the movie that John is watching, and so many go, oh, what kind of a beast is this going to be? It's so graphic and grotesque, and it's meant to be that way because it's showing the intent of the system, the nature, the, the true nature of the system. And so it's shown in these dramatic terms, and too often when people read it, they're trying to decipher and decode and predict what each element of the beast is pointing to in the future as opposed to seeing the bigger picture, which is that this is simply a tantrum of Satan to deceive people that ultimately will fail. And so I'm going to read the next um, chapter, chapter 13, in two parts and briefly explain the description, but then get back to the bigger picture. All right, everybody okay this morning? All right, so we're going to go to Revelation 13, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and 7 heads and with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like the leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them physically. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. There's persecution for the church. Eh? If anyone is to be slain with a sword, he will, with a sword he, um, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
He's, he's showing you Satan's strategy beforehand so that we don't fall prey, so that we're not deceived, so that we don't buy into the lie. He's showing us the tactic so that we can endure and stand up against whatever the culture of this world is. And so here we see Satan conjuring up his first beast. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, it looks scary as heck, right? It's like, it's a bit of a mishmash, you know, of, of different parts and different things. Um, sea beast seems to be a bit of a patchwork job assembled from the leftover parts of a lion and, and a bear and a leopard. And it's meant to frighten. This describes the, the way that Satan will work through the culture of our world. It's meant to intimidate and to impose its will in a way that will get us to compromise, to step back and to adopt this disobedience towards God's word. What does that look like though? Because I always want to know, what does this look like in real terms for my life? Like we're reading about a beast coming out of the sea. How is that applicable to me and what I experience in this world right now? How does the beast affect our lives? And the answer is through the politics of this world. You know, human politics has two ways of exercising control over humanity. The first one is through force, through legislation, through making certain things illegal. And it goes way beyond behavior. It drives deep into the realm of belief. Because all norms and values that we hold as a, as a society begin as beliefs. And so when society looked to the Bible and the Word of God as the source of belief, we believe that every single life is valuable because God created it. So murder is wrong, whether it's of an unborn baby or whether it is of somebody outside of the womb. Racism is wrong because God loves every tribe and every nation and every people. And so based on that, we can understand that murder is sinful and it is wrong and it should be illegal, but the more our world moves away from this, the more they normalize certain kinds of prejudice and murder. And we see this in our world. And so there are two ways that human politics impacts our lives, through force and coercion, which is represented by the first beast. And the secondly, through manipulation which is also known as propaganda politically, which drives home through belief. And so the two beasts, the sea beast is the force of, polit of politics, and the second one, the land beast, is the persuasion of propaganda. And these two, the devil will use to weave a culture and a, and a political system in our world that will literally make it illegal to hold the beliefs that we do that will make it illegal to stand for what we believe in. Ultimately, we are being told, even now in our society, what we are allowed to believe, what we are allowed to express. And if we express anything different to what the world has accepted as right or wrong, then we are violently antagonized. From the church's view on sexuality to its belief in God's intention for marriage to how to raise your children, to calling certain things sin and certain things not sin. If you do that in our world today, even today, you will be taken out. You can be taken to court, to the Human Rights Commission. You can be publicly shamed, imprisoned, have your career destroyed. I know several people that have lost their jobs in all kinds of spheres, from media to corporate to everything else, simply because they were Christians and stood for something. 
It's illegal in our world to believe certain things right now. It's being legislated. And this is a part of the strategy of the enemy. Let's scare these Christians. I'll put you in prison for saying that. Pastor, you better not preach the Bible. You better not say what the Bible says because we'll have people protest your church and shame you publicly and, 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 and the government come against you. This is what will increase as the world goes on. We're being told what we are allowed to believe by a political system that is meant to scare us into submission. So the first beast represents the force of human politics. It again, like the dragon, has these seven heads that represent authority and 10 horns which represent political power. Again, we go back to Daniel 7. The prophecies of the Old Testament help us understand this. And in Daniel 7, it shows us how the horns that, that were represented in that vision symbolized political power, spe specifically certain countries and empires that arose. And so it actually predicts in the book of Daniel, if you go through it, it shows us how there was a, a massive goat who stood over the land with his feet in the east and the west, and he had this massive horn, and, and then there was another goat that flew in this vision coming from the west with great speed and struck that beast and overturned him, and, and this is ultimately in reference to the Persian empire that was conquering all the way into the west in, the, in that time, and how Alexander the Great from Greece swept across the land, and the, the, that Greek empire toppled the Persian Empire. So these things have been used, the symbolism has been used in the Old Testament to show us political power, and it's the same here again. The horns will show these empires that will rise up, or the, the, the authority that is claimed by different political powers and nations. And this is why it says that they speak blasphemous things, because the politics of this world say, human politics will save us. Human, this is the promise that doesn't deliver. If we can just work together, if we can all, humanism is the answer, let's just love each other. It doesn't deal with the issue of sin, and it turns the attention away from the true Savior. It doesn't honor God, but claims to be the Savior itself. In that way, it is an antichrist spirit opposing Christ. And anyone who questions their power, the beast will make war with them. Listen to this, in Daniel 7, it says, Daniel 7 verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in, a, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up, stirred up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And so we see that the beasts now mentioned in the book of Revelation are beasts that we've already encountered in the book of Daniel. The lion, the bear, the leopard, they're already there. But now it's like those separate empires will gather together in what may be something like a one-world government with one ruler ruling over all of it. And what it is believed is that this represents the Antichrist, this first beast. He will have a mortal wound, possibly an assassination attempt or something that he will survive, and therefore people will worship him. And now we throw back to something like the Roman Empire, where the Roman emperors claimed that they themselves were not just political leaders, but actually gods. They claimed to be Apollo incarnate, 
And Apollo was said to usher in an era of peace. And so the Roman emperors declared that, they, that the people of Rome were to worship them because they had come to liberate the world as the incarnation of Apollo bringing peace and prosperity to the world. And so when they went about conquering nation after nation after nation in the Roman Empire, they were conquering those nations with what they thought was a holy intent. We're not conquering people, we're actually liberating people. And so that empire grew on this idea that we can save the world through politics by marching our armies in to apparently liberate them. And so this is something that we will see again in the future where this antichrist and these political powers will begin to assume something more than just being a president of a country or the head of a union. Instead, they will now begin to see themselves as God ushering in a new era in the world, holy in their conquest of the nations. So in essence, this vision here is showing us that these political powers of government actually have delegated power from the dragon, that they're actually agents as they weave the network of lies and, and edge out the truth of God's word. They're actually eight agents of Satan deceiving people into worshiping a false source of salvation. It's Rome all over again, and dissenters will not be tolerated. But here again is the good news for the church, because this can feel like, wow, how will we survive that? Well, the good news for the church, like we saw in Revelation 12, and again here now, if you carry on reading Daniel 7, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pa pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, even though Satan wants to pretend like he's holding on to power in this world, we know that we serve the one who has the unshakable kingdom, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron for all of eternity and will not be removed from his throne. You're on the right team. If you were wondering, you don't have to compromise. You don't have to buy into the culture of this world. You don't have to sacrifice your beliefs. Stand for them because you're on the right team. We serve the one who will come and who will rule. Daniel 7 shows us exactly what we're saying here. Verse 21 says, I looked, this horn, this political power, made war with the saints, with the church, and prevailed over them, just like we saw in Revelation, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The saints possessed the kingdom. That's our future, so we don't need a compromise. This political coercion is just a farce. It's just a lie. It's just a bluff. It's an intimidation tactic, and so John says, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Know what you believe and hold to it. Remain faithful. And let me just say this, that even in the early church, as they operated within the Roman Empire, and even when they were being persecuted, Paul wrote, even though many of the Christians were being slain by Rome, he wrote to the church saying, we are to respect and honor the government, and the political leaders. So this is not a thing where, where we begin to revolt and disrespect our leaders. 
But at the same time, we show contempt for any force that seeks to become a substitute for God and His salvation in Jesus, to divert the worship that's due to Him from the God that we can't see right now to the authorities that we can. We don't stand for that. Nobody takes God's place. Here comes the second beast. No, not police, but propaganda. Revelation 13, 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so this assassination attempt, this miraculous healing, becomes their claim to divinity. Look, he's divine. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the, it is the number of a man. His number is triple six 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 six. And so what will happen here is that this second beast will arise and he will begin to, like a false prophet, get people to worship the first beast or the Antichrist. In essence, it's the dragon's appointed PR and marketing team. And he'll even do signs to convince people of its divinity. And whoever does not worship this beast will be slain. In other words, where the first beast was focused on governmental power, the second is concerned with religion. And now we get a blending, like I was speaking about, between politics or government and religion. And they blend into one where believing in this governmental power becomes the religion of this world. They will blend to be able to control what people believe and how they behave with delegated authority from the dragon. And together, we now have the dragon. We have this first beast, like the Antichrist or Anti-Messiah, and we have this false prophet that form an unholy trinity trying to deceive people from trusting in Jesus. And their number is triple six, which is a human number. Again, John is going, I want you to understand that no matter what their efforts of coercion are, this is not divine. This is not Jesus. This is not the ruler of the earth. This is not the Messiah. God's number is triple seven, which means spiritual perfection. And there's a trinity, so it's 777. But Satan again fails three times to make the grade. He's not 777. He's just a little bit less, 666. Triple six represents three times failure. It's three failures in a row. Can't be God, can't be God, can't be God. Less than God, less than God, less than God. Nothing like the Messiah, nothing like the Messiah, nothing like the Messiah. It's purely human. The human politics of this world and religious ideas of this world can rage all it wants to. It will never overthrow the Messiah. It will never be greater than God's power in your life. Some people say the triple six could be a code for a name 
In the past, they would take alphabetical, or the alphabetical numbers or letters and give them numerical values and work out a name that way. And, and it may be something like that, but this is so much more. This is showing us three times triple failure. It's a human number. It's human uh, politics. And so where we can discern spiritually the impact of the first beast, the second beast, we can just figure him out. We won't be deceived by it. We can figure him out. This is human. This is human. This is not God. This is not human politics. It's no match for the Messiah. But the beast will turn religion into a political and commercial endeavor. And this is why, as the church, we've got to be so careful that we don't buy into this already increasing culture of allowing the world to dictate to us what we believe or the world to set the culture for us. If God's word doesn't allow it, if God's word speaks out about it, this is our constitution. This is what we hold fast to. This is what we stand on. We don't compromise with what the world tells us is okay and isn't okay, no matter what culture screams at us. But the world's idea, and this second beast, what he will do is he will slowly turn true faith commercialized religion. He'll commercialize it. He'll make it all about you, about your blessings, and about, and about how, how amazing your life is going to be, and you're never going to have any struggles, and it's, and it's good feelings, and it's marketing advice, and it's solace, and it's, it's all these things. Satan's tactic in our world is far more black market than it is black mass. The real power is the subtle power of culture, of compromise that infiltrates the church like a disease. And this is what will happen. Eugene Peterson again writes, when people adopt the creed mark of the land beast, they become gross parodies of the gospel, buying all they can to show that, that they are blessed by God, bowing down before every display of success. The buying and selling of religion is the mark of the beast. It's when we commercialize religion that we have accepted the mark of the beast. Far more than a number imprinted. Some of you are like, I was about to cut up my credit card. Thank you, pastor. I wasn't sure if that chip was the mark of the beast or if they were going to insert it into me at some point. This is something far deeper. But as, for, as fearsome as these beasts may seem, they are not indomitable. The dragon was defeated by Michael. The sea beast can be resisted and the land beast can be figured out. This takes the great deception of Satan, this world that feels like it, it just owns everybody and overwhelms everybody, and it brings it back down to just manageable terms. Hey, yep, that's not true. Not going to believe it. Hey, yep, we don't stand for that wave of culture. It's not, it's not we're, we're solid on the rock, founded on the rock. We figure it out. We recognize it for what it is. It's manageable. What is God doing here? He's equipping the church to stay true. He's equipping you even now in this age, right now, to stay true. And we can stay true because we can know that there is aggressive action underway in heaven on our behalf. That's what happens here in Revelation 14, and we won't have time to read all of it today. But what we see is that in, in chapter 14, we move into these three salvation-assuring visions that show that even though there's a great tantrum that Satan is throwing on the earth, the church will not be moved. And it, off, it moves through three visions. The first one is Jesus with 
the 144,000, remember that 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. It symbolizes the complete number. So the complete number of the church in heaven worshiping him. What do we do in response to the deception of this world? We worship Jesus. We honor the creator. We keep our eyes fixed on him. That's the first vision that we see in heaven. They have God's name written on their foreheads, so they can't have the mark of the beast. And so our response as the church, number one, is to worship. The second vision, these three angels fly overhead, and from mid-heaven as they fly over, they preach three gospel messages. What's the second thing we do in response to the deception and the tantrum of Satan? We just keep preaching the gospel. We just keep telling people the good news of God's salvation. We just keep warning them that the time is short. We just keep speaking out the truth, no matter what the devil wants to try and intimidate us with. We won't be intimidated. We'll preach the gospel tirelessly with every fiber of our beings. The third thing, we then see the time of reaping, the end of the world, and Jesus comes with a sickle symbolizing the time to gather the people together, to gather the harvest together, and he gathers all those on earth, first the believers, and then the the unbelievers, those that have worshiped the beast, those that have refused salvation, even though God offered it to them again and again and again and again, they chose to align themselves with Satan. And therefore they face that judgment now that Satan will face. It's described, they're described as grapes that are gathered up to go into the wine press of God's wrath. It's a time of judgment now. For the church, we're in heaven, we're worshiping. We don't compromise. What is that third thing? What is our response to the deception of this world? Not only do we worship, not only do we preach the gospel, but we also live holy lives. We live as living sacrifices knowing that our Savior will come and He will fetch us to Him. And rather than facing judgment, which God doesn't desire for anyone to face, other than the dragon and his counterparts, we will stand before the throne of Jesus and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so this is ultimately what Revelation 14 shows us. It speaks about a church, a people, that do not commit sexual immorality. And this is a metaphor, we see it in the Old Testament as well, for those who remain faithful, that, that don't practice infidelity in their faith. We are the faithful people, and it says, no, they were blameless. There was no lie in their mouths. We haven't adopted the lie of Satan. We haven't bought into it. We haven't become unfaithful. We stay true to the Word of God and to what he calls us to do. The three angels, in essence, you can go and read this, but their first message, the first angel says, give reverence and honor to God and worship him because he is the creator and the savior. The second says, Babylon is fallen. The world system, don't put your trust in it. It has failed and will fail. Thirdly, don't be fooled into submitting to the beast lest you face the same judgment as he does. This is our message to people. Trust in God don't trust in the world. Be rescued from judgment. I'm going to read you the final bit of Revelation 14, 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. 
for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This is the time that Jesus fetches his church. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. For the angels, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is about 185 kilometers. That's a real judgment. What is our role here, church? To share the news that God has rescued people from that. That He loves people and wants to see them removed from that. How? By having caused the blood of His own to flow out from the wine press. Blood and water flowed from Jesus to save us from that judgment. That's God's desire. That's God's heart. And so we don't have time to waste. This is what we need to do. As the church, we don't buy into the politics or the religion of this world. We don't adopt the attitudes and cultures of compromise. Here is the call to the endurance and the faith of the saints. Jesus is our only salvation. He is our only hope. And the devil's tantrum on this earth is about to be brought to an end. So hold fast, church. Reach out to people. Let's worship, let's preach the gospel, and let's live holy lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we pray?